Well, thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, <clears throat> glad that we can open up God's Word and study it together. Uh, so I want to invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of James. Uh, we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, and our text this morning is going to uh, be James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at verses 1 through 10, but uh, we are really dropping down into the middle of a thought that James is writing. And so uh, for our scripture reading this morning, I'm actually going to back up and read the text that we studied last time, uh, and hopefully in reading it, kind of call to mind and remind us uh, what it is that James has already said, what it is that he's already talked about that leads him then to uh, this text in James chapter 4. So I'm going to read for us James chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 12, because that's all of James' thought in this section of his letter, uh, but this morning we're just going to look at and drill down into James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. So with that in mind, I want to invite you that if you are able to stand with me once more in honor of reading God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. <clears throat> Starting in 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. 
excuse me, let's pray. Father, as we come and turn our attention to your word now, I I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts to teach us, uh, Lord, where it is that we need to be taught, to correct us where it is that we need to be corrected, to convict us where we need conviction, to call us to repentance uh, where we need to repent, Lord, to open our eyes maybe to sins that we don't even realize that we're blind to. Lord, I pray that as we walk through this text, as we, as we look at what it has to say to us about our sinful, selfish hearts and our need for genuine repentance, Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would be at work in our hearts to help us to turn away from our sin, to place our faith in you, to trust ourselves to you, and to be obedient to your word. pray these things for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Like I said, we're going to be looking here really at the middle of this argument that James is making uh, as he's writing this letter to the church. And so our sermon this morning is, is chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. But just by way of reminder, kind of a big picture of, of what this letter is, maybe if you're here for the first time, uh, or maybe it's been a long time uh, since uh, we've reviewed what it is that we're looking at in James. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is writing this letter to the church. Uh, the church uh, at this point uh, is made primarily of Jewish converts uh, who were in Jerusalem uh, and then also some uh, Gentiles now who are being brought into the church. But primarily this fellowship uh, is uh, Jewish converts uh, who are now Christians and who, uh, who are worshiping uh, on the Lord's day. Uh, they, had, they began, the church started there in Jerusalem. But if you remember from the book of Acts, when we studied the book of Acts, uh, maybe a couple of years ago now, uh, that uh, because of persecution and because of, uh, uh, of conflict and, and external pressures, uh, the church uh, had to spread out. Uh, they left Jerusalem. Some stayed in Jerusalem, but uh, for the most part, uh, everybody spread out uh, to the surrounding areas in, uh, around Jerusalem, and that's where the church is now. Uh, and so it seems as if uh, we've already seen how James has addressed those external conflicts, the persecutions and the sufferings that uh, the church was facing. All the way back in chapter 1, James says, uh, consider it joy when you face these things because your faith is being tested and purified. Uh, and if you withstand uh, these uh, sufferings and these persecutions, uh, then your faith is going to be all the stronger. It's going to be made perfect and complete. But here, in this text really in this section james is not so much concerned about the external suffering and the external pressures uh, that are facing the church that uh, are really putting the church in danger what he's primarily concerned about here in this text is internal conflict things that are going on within the hearts of each individual christian things that are going on within the church itself uh, that are threatening uh, the church's fellowship so he begins like we saw Uh, or we read, we looked at last time, this section on the distinction between worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom uh, and the contrast between those two. Uh, And uh, the sign of worldly wisdom is is if you have attitudes of bitter jealousy uh, and selfish ambition in your hearts. But we're going to see this worldly wisdom has affected the church in some kind of way and caused strife and quarrels and arguments to the point that James is going to now drill down into their hearts to talk about 
why it is conflict exists within the church, why it is that conflict exists within that area, and then the solution to that problem of the conflict. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at today. So for those of you guys who maybe you remember, I, I like to give you just a, a, a summary statement, a, a just one sentence of summary of what I think this passage is teaching us. And so <clears throat> for those of you guys who are note takers, it's in your bulletin there. I think the main idea of our text this morning is that as followers of Jesus, we must reject our sinful, selfish desires which lead us to quarrels and fights with one another, and we must humbly submit ourselves to God's grace. Okay, so as followers of Jesus, we have to reject our sinful desires which lead to quarrels and fights with one another, and we have to humbly submit ourselves to God's grace grace. I have two points in the sermon today. There's the problem and there's the solution. So point number one is the problem that James is uh, dissecting and point number two is the solution to that problem. Okay, so point number one, the problem. The problem is is that we selfishly strive after worldly desires. That's the problem. We selfishly strive after worldly desires. James says here in verse one, what causes quarrels and fights among you? So this is a rhetorical question that James is asking of the church. What is it that you're fighting over? What's causing the fights and the quarrels? Now, we don't know exactly what they were fighting over. James doesn't, he doesn't specify in this verse. Now, there's commentators who, who give their best guesses as to what these fights and quarrels were over. Uh, so, for example, one uh, that I read was that perhaps the fights and quarrels uh, were over social distinctions that were being made in the church. So you remember back uh, in James chapter 2, 3, he talks about uh, this distinction between the rich and the poor uh, and how, uh, <clears throat> how we're not to make distinction based off of uh, earthly things, uh, earthly distinctions. And uh, so one commentator said that, James has a lot more to say about it, by the way, that's coming up in the letter. Uh, and so he says that perhaps what the fights and the quarrels were over was based off of these social distinctions, Right? The rich people in the church were fighting with the poor people in the church and, and going back and forth. And that kind of makes sense based off of what James goes on to talk about in our passage, that you, know, you covet and you don't have, and so you do all these things. And so he's talking about things like covetousness and jealousy and, and these kinds of things. So perhaps that is the quarrel. Maybe that's the fight, that they're fighting over these social distinctions. But James doesn't really say. It, it, it's, it's kind of a general question. What is it that's causing fights and quarrels among you? And honestly, if you read verse 1 closely, it doesn't really matter to James what it is that they're fighting over. What matters to James is why they're fighting. Do you see that? So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what the fight was over. James is concerned about the heart of the issue. Why is it that they're fighting? Right? What causes, what's the source of these quarrels? So I want to take a second and pause right here. You know, for those of you guys who maybe this is, maybe you've grown up in the church, maybe this is your first time in church. I don't know. Perhaps in a crowd this size, there's somebody here that this is their first time ever coming to church. Your experience in life may have been that fights and quarrels and arguments and conflict is just a normal part of life might be your daily experience. might be your daily experience at home, in your family, 
It might be your daily experience at, at your workplace. It might even be your experience in the church that fighting and quarreling and arguing and bickering, that's just the normal part of, of life. One of the things that I love about the Bible is that it recognizes the reality of our experience, but it doesn't make it normal. And James does that here. Right? James is acknowledging that fights and quarrels are taking place within the church, but guys, it's not normal. So if your experience in the church, maybe even this church, maybe your experience is fights and quarrels all the time. These things ought not to be so. God desires not that we fight and quarrel among each other, but God desires that we would have a spirit of peace and a spirit of unity. So whatever your experience may be, don't normalize it. Don't think it's normal that fights and quarrels are just part of church life. No. No. These things ought not to be so. So I love how the Bible recognizes reality but corrects, corrects our experience as well. Don't accept disunity. Don't accept fighting and arguing and anger and quarreling and so on as normal in your life. These things aren't normal. They are a result of sin, and such attitudes have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Such attitudes are not from God, but they're from the world. It's exactly what James is concerned with here. So he, he asks the question, and then he goes straight to the source. He goes straight to the source by asking a follow-up question. So he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Look at the second part of verse 1. Look down at verse 1. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So he drills down deep into the heart of whatever the argument is, whatever was going on, and he says, the, the source of the problem is that your passions are at war within you. Now that word passions there, depending on what translation you're reading right now, uh, could be translated in any number of ways. So uh, the ESV and the NIV uh, both say passions, just like what I'm reading here. Uh, if you're reading the New American Standard, uh, it's translated pleasures. Pleasures. Uh, if you're reading the King James, and I believe maybe even the New King James, uh, this word is translated lusts. Right? But this word uh, <coughs> is hedonon. The, the Greek word is hedonon, and it's the word from which we get our word hedonism. So if you guys know hedonism, this idea of hedonism uh, is uh, this way of life where you uh, just pursue everything that makes you happy, right? And so if you're a hedonist, you pursue whatever it is in your life that's just going to make you happy, and your life is spent in the pursuit of pleasure uh, and, and happiness, uh, and you avoid anything that could potentially cause you pain, right? It's not, not real life, <laughs> by the way essentially. It's not real life, but it's that, that's the word here, uh, this word for pleasures. This word is very rare in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's used twice here in chapter 4. James uses it twice in these 10 verses. Other than that, it's only used three other times in the entire, in the entire New Testament. The first time is in 2 Peter, or actually one of the times is in 2 Peter. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13, Peter's talking about uh, false teachers in the church that have come into the church. Uh, and one of the ways that we know that they are false teachers 
is that they count it pleasure, they count it pleasure to, to revel in the daytime. So their lifestyle doesn't match up with their message, right? They, they count it a pleasure, there's that word, to revel in the daytime. In, in Luke chapter 8, uh, you know the parable of the soils, the seed and the sower and the soils that Jesus teaches. In Luke chapter 8, uh, he's describing the soil that's overgrown with thistles and thorns. And, and when interpreting this uh, parable to his disciples, uh, he says that uh, the, the seed that falls on the thorny soil, he said that they are those who hear the word, uh, and they go their way, and they are choked out by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. There's the word again, pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. So again, this word is used in a negative way. The last time is in Titus 3, verse 3. Paul is writing to Titus, who's a pastor, uh, and he's reflecting upon the grace that God has shown him and saving him. And, and Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating everyone. So there that word again is used in a negative sense, just chasing after these selfish ambitions that will bring us happiness, that will make us happy, that will push out any pain or suffering at the cost and not really caring about what anybody else uh, is experiencing. Right, so James is saying here that these passions right, are at war within our hearts and because they are at war within our hearts, it's causing conflict and arguments and fights and anger and warring within the church. So that's the source of the conflict, is that people are being selfish. They're looking out for what's going to make them happy, what's going to fulfill them, at the expense of everyone else. Not considering their brother is as important as they are, but chasing after, selfishly striving after whatever it is that's going to make them happy. That's the problem. That's the problem. But notice what James does next. Uh, starting there in verse 2 and going all the way, uh, really verses 2 and 3, James starts dropping these little missiles into the problem. He's identified the problem, but now you're going to see he just starts launching these little missiles into the problem. He says there uh, in verse 2, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Another little missile. You do not have because you do not ask. Another little missile. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. There's that word again. You ask to spend it on your own passions. Now these little bombs that James is laying out is building up to a nuclear warhead that he's about to drop in verse 4, right in the middle of our hearts. Okay, so he's, he's preparing the way with these little missiles, and then in verse 4, he's just going to unleash the whole thing. Okay, but, but before we get to that nuke, let, let's look at these little missiles. Okay, so first, there in verse 2, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. That's the first one, I think. What James is doing here is he's pointing us back to the teaching of his half-brother half uh, in Matthew chapter 5. So it's, it seems kind of extreme at first, right, that James would go straight to murder. 
right? Uh, you, you covet, you don't have, and so you murder. Whoa! <laughs> but that seems like an extreme jump that James kind of goes straight to. But, but what James is doing here is he's pointing us back to Jesus' teaching. He's, point, he's bringing back to mind uh, his brother's teaching from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should not murder. Right? He takes the commandment from the Ten Commandments. He says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. But then he says, right, I say to you that if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. It's what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is doing is he's looking into the soul. And he's saying the same attitude that would lead a person to commit a violent act of murder against another person is the same move in your soul that leads you to be angry with another person as well. Even if you don't act out in violence against that person, it's the same thing going on in your heart. You see, so Jesus drills down into the heart of the commandment, and James does the same thing here, right? We may not actually act out in violence because of our uh, uh, coveting and jealousy uh, towards another person, but we will get angry with them. We will harvest anger and bitterness in our hearts towards that person. And James is saying here that that anger that we have is the same move in our souls as murderous intentions. So you have, or you desire and you do not have, so you murder. The second missile, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Now this one's obvious. To any of you guys who have kids, this one's obvious. Any of you guys who have uh, have grandkids, this is obvious. Right? Any of you guys who grew up in a house with other people, <laughs> this is obvious, right? You, you, you want something, you covet something, and you can't obtain it, so you fight and you quarrel. You argue with each other. How many times have you experienced with a child who picks up a toy and is playing with a toy, having a good old time with whatever it might be, and then the toy loses its luster, it's, you know, get bored with it after a while, so they put it down and they go off to something else. Seemingly forgetting about this toy, maybe even for an hour or more. Until a little brother or a little sister comes along and picks up that toy. Then all of a sudden, what happens? That toy is mine. <laughs> right? And it's not necessarily that, that I want to play with it, but I don't want that person playing with it. Right? I don't want them to be happy. Right? Well, James is saying here, this, we, we're the same way. Within the church, we're the same way. We covet something and we desire something that we cannot have, and so we fight. We fight and we quarrel over it. Rather than following the scripture that clearly teaches us our need to love one another and to consider others more important than ourselves, we'd rather fight and argue and cause disunity because we don't get what we want. The third little missile James goes to prayer. He goes to prayer says we don't have because we don't ask right we we don't have these good things that whatever it is that uh, that we feel like we need right we don't have these things because we don't ask right? this is a reminder guys that our heavenly father knows what we need and he delights in hearing his children's prayer and he delights in answering those prayers in accordance with his perfect will. 
So perhaps the reason you're coveting, perhaps the reason you don't have what it is that you seem like you need is because you haven't gone to God and asked Him for it. Guys, prayerlessness, prayerlessness is a result of giving in to sinful and selfish desires. Do you see that in your own heart? When sinful and selfish desires start to take root in your heart, typically the first thing to go is your prayer life. You ever notice that? It's because you turn inward, right? And you seek to, in your own strength, fill whatever void it is that's in your heart. It's a natural, sinful response. By the way, it's the very definition of idolatry as well, isn't it? Desiring the gift more than desiring the giver of the gift. Worshiping the thing, the creation, rather than the creator. Prayerlessness is, it is a symptom of a heart that has given in to sinful, selfish desires. But maybe that's not you. Pastor Nick, I have prayed for these things. I have asked God over and over and over again to fix this fight between me and this person, primarily to fix their heart, right? Show them where they're wrong so that we can be reconciled back again together. But look at what James says about that. This little missile that he drops into our prideful hearts. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. There's that word again, passions. You realize, guys, that God does not honor a prayer that is prayed out of selfish ambition. You realize that? God does not honor prayers that are prayed out of selfish ambition. As Christians, children of the Heavenly Father, bought with the blood of His own Son, our desire, our prayer, the prayer that we were taught by our Savior, is not my will but your will be done. And when we pray out of selfish motivations to spend whatever it is that we're asking for to fulfill our own selfish and sinful desires, God does not answer those prayers. He is not pleased with our selfish ambition. And He won't answer. Just like any good parent, will say no to a child who is asking them for something that's dangerous, so God, our Heavenly Father, will not give us the selfish desires of our hearts. So when we pray for things, for our own glory, and not for the glory of God, God is not honored with those prayers, and He will not answer them. James says it very clearly. You ask, but you don't receive because you're asking out of the wrong motivation. You're asking to fulfill your own selfish desires, to spend it on your own passions, rather than the glory of God and for the will of the Lord to be done. So we need to check our hearts. It's not just the fact that we need to pray for these things, but we need to pray in the right motivation, out of the right heart, with the right desires. Which, by the way, I don't have time to get into this, but I'm going to. Flies in the face of the prosperity gospel all day long. 
So if, if, if there is a preacher on TV or on the radio, or if one stands in this pulpit one day and says to you, right, you don't have because you don't ask, and you just need that promotion, you just need, you, the reason why you haven't gotten that promotion and, and that raise and good health and whatever it is, right, it's just because you haven't asked God, you don't have enough faith. James says here, no, we, we pray for God's glory, for His will to be done in our lives, not, not to spend it on our own selfish passions and desires. So James is dropping these little missiles into our conflict, into our hearts, and then in verse 4, he releases just a nuclear warhead. Look down at verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I think James here is again pointing back to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 that we read uh, during the offertory, right? That we can't chase after the pleasures and the material things of this world and serve both God and money. You cannot have divided allegiances. You're either going to love one and hate the other, or you're going to serve one uh, and despise the other. Right? So, so you can't have divided allegiances. And James is picking up on this teaching of his brother, and he's laying it out in the middle of the conflict that this church is facing, and he's saying, you adulterous, unfaithful people. That seems kind of harsh. Right? Until you understand who we as a church are. Brothers and sisters, we are the blood-bought bride of Christ. We are the people of God that He purchased with His own Son. We belong to Him. And if we chase after the things of this world, we are unfaithful. To our God, who has bought us out of this world for his own glory. That's why James says, you adulterous people, you, you adulteresses, right? You're, you're spending your passions on the things, the very things that God has saved you from. You're being unfaithful to God. And then he goes on to say, you can't have divided allegiances. You, you can't, you can't uh, love the things of the world and spend your, uh, your desires and spend your energy in pursuing the things of the world and at the same time call yourself a friend of God. So if you're living your life for selfish ambition, you cannot say that you are a friend of God. He goes on to say that you make yourself an enemy of God. don't be deceived brothers and sisters if you are living your life in pursuit of worldly pleasures whatever those pleasures might be if it's money if it's fame if it's a career if it's material possessions if it's an ungodly and unholy relationship if that's what you're spending your life on then you cannot be living your life for the glory of god that's the news and this is all really bad hard news so where's the good news well, James gets to the good news next, right? So he's laid out the problem, but now let's look at the solution. Here's the solution. After dissecting the problem in our sinful hearts, 
James offers us a gospel solution. The solution is that God gives grace to the humble. So point number two, the solution. God gives grace to the humble. So in the very shadow of the mushroom cloud of this nuclear bomb that he's just dropped into this situation, James now holds out a healing balm. He says in verses 5 and 6, he says, Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has placed within us. But He gives more grace. And therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He quotes Scripture. He goes to Proverbs chapter 3. Right? He quotes, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now if you look down in verse 5 there, there's a big issue here of translation. And I am almost out of time, so I don't have time to delve into it. Uh, so if you want to know what the issue of translation is, and, and if your Bible reads a little bit differently than maybe mine read when I read the Scripture passage, come talk to me later. I'd love to talk to you more about it and what that, what that looks like. Uh, but <clears throat> we're going to move on. <laughs> right? But here's the main point, though. Here's what James is saying. He's, saying he's, he's quoting Scripture, this general uh, theme of Scripture to say, that even though that we are an unfaithful and rebellious people, an adulterous people, our God jealously yearns over our hearts, over the spirit that he's placed within us. And so he therefore offers us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And we just sang this wonderful and precious truth a few minutes ago marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. The good news is this today, that even though every single one of us have lived our lives in pursuit of selfish desires, even though every single one of us have caused quarrels and fights and divisions within our families, within our workplace, and maybe even within this church, we have hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ that He lived a perfect, sinless, selfless life that we could never live. The Apostle Paul says that he didn't even count his equality with God something to be exploited over us, but he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and died on the cross for our sin. So our punishment that we deserve for our sin, for those of us who have repented of sin and believed in Christ, that punishment is nailed with Jesus on the cross. He died for our sin and our guilt. And James says that this grace, this forgiveness is ours when we humble ourselves and repent. But what does that look like? What does genuine biblical repentance look like? How do you do that? Well, James tells us. That's what he spends the next several verses here, verses 7 through 10, as to teach us about what genuine biblical repentance looks like. Right? So look carefully here. What I want to do is I want to take these different commands. The way that he does this is he starts throwing all these commands at us. And these things aren't suggestions, by the way. He's commanding us to do something here. Okay? And in this list of commands that he throws at us, he teaches us what genuine repentance uh, looks like. 
But if you'll notice, if you look really carefully, these commands are sandwiched in between two of the same commands, and both of those commands end with a promise. Okay, so let's look at this. You've got to look down at your, at your Bible. Look at uh, the second part of verse 6. Down at verse 6. So he gives more grace. Therefore it said, God opposes the proud, but it gives grace to the humble. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. So the command here, the first part of the sandwich, is to submit yourself to God. But the promise that, that, that comes after that command, the promise and the fulfillment of that command is found in verse 6. He gives grace to the humble. So when we submit ourselves to God, when we humble ourselves before them, he gives us grace. He gives us forgiveness. He withholds his wrath from us because of our sin. You see that? So that's the first, that's the first piece of bread in the sandwich in the repentance grace sandwich. Look at the second piece down in verse 10. Here's the command. Humble yourselves before the Lord. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. Right? Humble yourselves before the Lord. And what's the promise that comes after? And He will exalt you. So in between all these commands that He lists, He gives this same promise. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He'll show you grace. And at the end, humble yourself before the Lord and he'll exalt you. You see, these commands come with a promise. That ought to be an encouragement for us to obey. So let's, let's look here then uh, at really quick at this list of commands. Right? <clears throat> Starting there in verse uh, 7. Here's one command. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Command 2. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Command 3. Cleanse your hands. Command four, purify your hearts. Command five, be wretched and mourn. Command six, weep. Command seven, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Command eight, let your joy be turned into gloom. Now we don't have time to walk through each one of these commands, but here's your homework. Here's your homework. Sometime this afternoon, sit down with your Bible, sit down with your family, and talk through each one of these commands. I guarantee you, as you talk through each one of these commands, use the cross-references in your Bible to look at other parts in the Bible that talk about these things. I guarantee you these things will help you to understand repentance better. It'll be a balm to your soul. We don't have time to do that, so what I want to do is I want to take, I think each one of these commands fit into two categories. Okay, so I'm going to give you the big picture, and I'm going to leave it to you to work out the particulars. Okay, so here's the big picture. There's two categories that James lists in each one of these commands, and these two categories teach us what genuine repentance looks like. Okay, so the first category is that genuine repentance begins with brokenness over sin. Genuine repentance begins with brokenness over sin. That's why he says, be wretched and mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned into mourning, let your joy be turned into gloom. He's teaching you about brokenness, genuine brokenness over your sin. Right? So in order to genuinely repent, you have to be broken over the sin that's in your heart. You have to feel the weight and the guilt of that. You have to feel what Paul teaches us in Romans 6.23, that the wages of your sin is death. 
you have to feel the fact that your sin is against a perfectly holy and righteous God who, by the way, says in Exodus 34 that cannot allow sins to go unpunished. You have to feel the weight of your sin in order to genuinely repent. But that's not enough. It's not enough just to feel bad. The second category of genuine repentance is that your brokenness over your sin must lead you to obey God's word. So your brokenness over your sin is the starting point of repentance, but then that must lead you then to be obedient to God's word. That's why he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. This is the language of obedience. Turning away from the world and turning to Christ and and purifying your hands and cleansing your hearts so that you can obey God's Word. Guys, it's very common for people to feel bad over their sin. But just like that sin will promise you temporary pleasure, so just feeling bad over it, that's temporary too. How many times can can we feel bad for something that we did, but give it a little time and we'll feel a little better? We'll get over it. That's not genuine repentance. That's feeling sorry that you got caught. Your parents ever ask you that question when you got caught doing something wrong? My dad did. Are you sad that you got caught or are you sad that you did wrong? Be honest, right? If I'm sad that I got caught, that's not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance always leads to a transformed heart that seeks to walk in obedience with God's word. So brokenness over sin is the starting point, but that brokenness must then lead us to obey God's word. It must lead us to forsake our sin, to forsake the things of this world, to follow after Christ, to yearn for His glory, to desire Him more than the gifts that He gives. But to not do that, James says, is to be like that man who looks at his face in the mirror and then turns away and immediately forgets what he looks like. That's not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance always ends in obedience. And here's the good news. If we repent, if you repent of your sins, the promise is that he will give you grace upon grace and that he will lift you up. There is hope for you, sinner. There is hope for you at the foot of the cross of Jesus where he pardons your sin. He purchases you for himself. He purifies you with his blood. If you would turn to him in faith and repent, genuinely repent of your sins. Well, I want to end this morning by offering just a few thoughts on how we can be a church who's marked not by selfish quarrels and fights, but a church who is marked by genuine faith and repentance. Because that's the kind of church we want to be. A church that puts on display genuine faith and repentance. Based off of this text, think a genuine church marked by genuine faith is a church that's slow to argue and quick to forget. So be slow to argue with one another and be quick to forgive. Number two, a church that's marked by genuine faith is not marked by jealousy and covetousness, but love and grace and deference. To consider one another more important than yourself. Third, a 
a church that's marked by genuine faith is, a, is that. It's a church whose members consider others before they consider themselves. Right? Who are willing to humbly not get their way, whatever it is that they think will make them happy, and to share in other people's joy instead of getting angry when we don't get our way. A church that's marked by genuine faith is a church whose members don't celebrate sin, but who mourn over sin. Who weep over sin beginning with their own. And finally, a church that's marked by genuine faith is a church who is obedient to God's Word, even when it hurts. Even when it hurts, or even when we'll be persecuted because of it. So, brothers and sisters, what kind of church are we? What kind of church are we? What kind of church do you want us to be? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way that it exposes our sinful hearts. Father, I pray that we would respond in repentance and faith. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning, perhaps who have never trusted in you. Lord, I pray that you would show them their need for a Savior. Show them that Jesus is the only Savior that can, that can deal with their sin. So Show them, Father, that he's the only way that they can be saved. Father, for those of us who, who are believers, who are Christians, I pray, Lord, as, as we continue on in this life, as we continue to battle against our sin, as our passions uh, are at war within us, Father, that you would help us in the power of your Holy Spirit to fight against our flesh. Lord, that you would give us, in the power of your Holy Spirit, a desire to live for your glory and not for our own glory or happiness. Lord, I pray that you would convict us where we need convicting. Father, I pray that you would grant us repentance where we need to repent. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see areas in our own hearts where probably we're even blind to our sin. And Father, I pray that we would respond to this word today by submitting ourselves, by humbling ourselves before God to be washed again in the blood of the Savior. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.